kampong spirit was equivalent to kakinam for me, whereby it doesn't matter who you are, it's that I treat you as one of my own people. And it defies how I care for you, regardless of who you are, what you are, what label, what gender, what nationality, but I treat you as our own people. So I love that we're talking about this because for so many years I struggled with the difference in what community means to you and I who grew up in a collectivist culture in that kampong spirit versus here where I find there's such a lack of that deep understanding of community. We don't essentially think about the significance of what it means to be reborn into a society that's not ours. Because when we were first born, we were born into our community. But here, we are born into a vacuum whereby we have to then look for community. Welcome to Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie Podcast. Your host, Patricia Peterson, has conversations with BIPOC folks about life, shares wisdom, and discusses their experience with topics like growing up in an immigrant family, racism, and the sense of belonging. In this podcast, we give voice to people of color and learn more about their lives. So join your Chinese auntie as she has compelling conversations with fascinating people. Without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into this episode. Hi there. This episode is part of my conversation with Luna from the conversation we had regarding Luna New Year. I wanted to separate the episodes because this conversation is about community, about the sense of belonging. And if you know me, I feel really strongly about creating community because it is lacking for so many of us, especially those who are immigrants or refugees. In this conversation, you will hear us talk about kampong and the term kakinang. Kampong in Malay or Indonesian is a term for a village. It refers to a sense of community where everyone looks out for each other. It is a community where everybody shared the burden of raising a family. In Singapore, where Luna and I grew up, kampong were the way of life for early settlers. In a kampong village, people would sit outside, they would do their chores, and the neighbours would pop white on the nose, and the whole village would come to your rescue if you needed any help. In the show notes, I will link an article about kampong life, some people in Singapore are trying to keep the kampong spirit alive by coming together. In this episode, we also talk about kakinang. You will hear us say this Teochew phrase quite a bit. You might be familiar with the term if you watch the movie Crazy Rich Asians. In that movie, Michelle Yeoh's character, Eleanor Young, was talking to Constant Wu's character, Rachel Chu. And Michelle Yeoh's character was telling Rachel Chu, 
that she would never be accepted into her family because she is not considered their own people. Kakinang Tsitiren refers to our own people. Lastly, I also want to talk about the term of red eggs that you will hear Luna and I talk about in this episode. In Chinese culture, eggs symbolize birth or a new start. And the color red symbolizes prosperity and good fortune to the Chinese people. This is such a great conversation and so good for my soul. I hope you enjoy this episode. You talk about wanting to ask about Gakinang Productions. Oh yeah, let's go to that, yeah. Yeah, so the Gakinang Productions is a productions company that created recently. And for now, I'm doing a lot of community planning and facilitation work. But at the core of Gakinang Productions is creative productions, because I'm an artist. And so to talk about the word Gakinang, this is quite an important word for me in the context of being a settler here on these lands and also what it means to have that word coming from Singapore and growing up in Singapore. And it, it relates to the kampong uh, mentality and practice, which is getting harder and harder to find in Singapore, I think. And so for listeners, kampong is the Malay word that means village. And in old Singapore, and when I say old, like, Imagine like Singapore in night, early 1900s to like even the 1980s, there was a very strong kampong culture or village culture whereby people of different ethnicities can live in the same neighborhoods or same village and they practice this thing called kampong spirit where they take care of each other. Mm-hmm. But then Singapore started modernizing into flats. And when kampongs move into flats, that kampong spirit was lost. So I remember growing up as a Teochew person, one of the sayings that we have is Kakinang, which mm-hmm. is our own people. And Kampong spirit was equivalent to Kakinang for me, whereby it doesn't matter who you are, it's that I treat you as one of my own people. And it defines how I care for you, regardless of who you are what you are, what label, what gender, what nationality, but I treat you as our own people. And I also remember growing up hearing the saying that wherever you go around the world, you will find your own people and you will treat them as your own people. So I've been on these lands for 20 something years now. And I went through a lot of like identity crises. And when I came out as a non-binary person, that became worse. And I keep trying to like figure out like what is it that I bring as part of my roots and because I became so disconnected to Singapore because of how fast and more than ice and I just felt like I've become a tourist in my own country that there was something I really needed to hold on to to remind myself about who I am and so in my deep reflections like over many years over 10 years or so I slowly came to accept that I don't need to only know how to speak English. I need to connect back to the language that I was taught, which is Chinese. So in the last 10 years, I've done a lot of community-based work. And a lot of the community-based work that I do centered around loneliness, depression, around disconnection, 
And I think in Vancouver, generally Metro Vancouver, there's, and in Canada, right? There's this like big theme of people just feeling disconnected from community and finding it hard to find community in Vancouver. And so in my deep reflection of just what is missing for me specifically is the gumpong spirit. Mm-hmm. That when I came here as a settler, I tried to learn to be white. I tried to learn what it means to be Canadian and entirely forsaken the idea of Gakinang. Mm-hmm. So when I started Gakinang Productions, I really sat down just like, what is something that I really want to bring into my practice as an elder in training of having the name Aishin uh, with a loving heart? It's that community is about our own people, right? It's not so much ownership-based. Like I want to sidestep the capitalistic idea of our own people as like ownership. But I think it's like the idea of, I think in like Christianity, people talk about how you treat others is how you treat others until you treat yourself, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I think the same concept applies here. It is that with Gakinang, I'm hoping that with the productions that I do, that it will instill and bring about the kampong spirit from my lands as a gift to the people of these lands. Especially when I come into contact with indigenous folks, I think about their own Gakinang culture and how strong that is and how much they try to keep that with a government that continues to try to separate them, right? Like the government here does not treat people as Gakinang. Uh-uh. And I love that you're talking about this, right? Because Gakinang and that kampong spirit is community, right? It's you're my person for many years. And I still struggle with this. And I think you and I have had chats about this, not in depth, but the lack of community and what community means in the Western individualistic capitalist society. Their version and their thoughts of community is very different than you and I, mm-hmm. right? And Kakinang, that term Kakinang, I don't know whether it's possible to translate it to fit the Western society. Because when you talk about a kampong spread in Singapore, moving, getting rid of the kampong and bring people into flats, into apartment buildings. And something to note too, in Singapore, unless it's private condominiums, all the apartment buildings, the flats are open space. So you can go to any floors, you can visit your relatives or your neighbors on any floor. You don't have to tap in, tap out. For me, when we were in the old apartment building, so we moved out of that when I was 11, but that older one, it still had the kampong spirit because my parents both worked and the whole floor we were on, the eighth floor, that one maybe how how many flats do you think on each floor? Ten? Yeah, for me, I think my the old one that I lived in when I was in the eighties, there was probably about twenty on each floor. Because yeah. it was a long one. But I know the ones you're talking about. They probably are 10 to 15 on each floor. And it's typically 12 floors, right? Yeah, 12 floors. Because those are the older buildings. The newer buildings are, are higher. Yeah, so about 12 floors. I think maybe 10 to 15, you're right. So with that, 
there was one auntie on the second apartment in. She looked after all the children. Yes. You talk about community, right? You talk about that kampong spirit. She looked after all the children and nobody closed the main door. So all the apartments, the flats have a metal gate and then there's a wooden door. Most people didn't close the wooden door at that time because of that community spirit. So you can see, and now, okay, you can also say they're being busy bought, but you talk about the spirit of community is that the adults can keep an eye on which kid has come home from school. They can see through the metal gates, yep. right? And that's what this auntie did. And I remember sometimes she would yell at the younger ones if they were fighting down the hall and she would come and check in on everybody. So I love that we're talking about this because for so many years, I struggled with the difference in what community means to you and I who grew up in a collectivist culture in that kampong spirit versus here where I find there's such a lack of that deep understanding of community. Yeah. In Singapore, in that community spirit. If your cousin is moving house, your mother will look at you and go show up at three o'clock. There is no, can you go help your cousin move? There's no, you show up at three o'clock and you take your dad's truck. Yeah. Right? It's that you show up no matter what happens. You're yeah. just there and you will never be alone when things happen. Yeah. Good or bad, but especially bad things, you will never be alone because your nosy relatives, we jokingly say they're nosy, but some of them really are nosy. Yeah. They will show up. What they will bring food, yeah. they will send their children to check in on. And then just now, early on, you were talking about the connections, right? Who you know. They step in and they go, oh, you want to go into this high school, but you don't have to grade. I know the principal. Let me talk to them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. I have distinct memories of that. (laughs) Okay, as much as a part of me left Singapore because family stuff, but I miss some aspects of that. And I miss the drop-in culture. Oh, the drop-in culture. The drop-in culture is, is, that really gets me. As you were talking about this, my brain just went to the times when our front door is open, right? Like you said, everyone's wooden door is open. The gates might be closed, but the front, the, the wooden door is always open. And the difference between hearing a doorbell to a knock on your door, which happens here a lot, to my neighbor coming over to our place and yell at my mom and be like, she comes over, she doesn't see anyone. She'll be like, Atsuwa, Atsu, Atsu. My mom's name is Pearl. So Pearl is too. Yeah. Yeah. And so she'll be like, Atsuwa. And then my mom will come up from the kitchen or I will hear it and be like, and then she'll see us and then you'll talk. And also remember time from time to time, you walk past your neighbor's house. And when that wooden door is open, you smell what they cook like my auntie. Yes. And then you'll be like, Oh, what are you cooking? It smells so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's coming for chat. 
oh, it's so great. I really miss that. And nobody calls you. And you never keep your house clean. Nope. Not that, our, not that the houses were dirty, but nobody ever like on purpose had this idea at the back of their head that my house needs to be tidy. Yep. Yeah, I miss that. It's a bizarre practice, right? So bizarre practice here, I find that's, I find that so hard oh. to understand still. Every time like I call up a friend or we make plans to come over and I've witnessed this with my partners, ex-partners and peoples that I live with feel like it's just, okay, they're coming over. We need to clean up the house. And I just get so confused because I'm like, when I live in Singapore, what cleaning? Mom will be chopping a chicken and then the neighbors come over. You don't clean up the chicken. You just cut your chickens. She like sweeps the floor at night. I remember we mopped the floor because all the floors were towels. Yep. I remember we mop it every day. Yep. Yeah, at night. That's yeah, why I'm... you do it at night. But no one cares. You like, your neighbor comes over, you don't do a big spring clean. No. You don't put no. things tidy. There's no, no. S- no time for that. No, you don't hide things away. You just... But somehow here, there always seems to be like this looming thing where it's, I want to meet a friend, but it's so tiring because then I have to clean up the house. And I, I find that when I like connect with friends here, there's always this thing that people do. Just, just so you know, if you come to my house, it's not that tidy and I hope it's okay. And in my brain, I just like, why do you need to tell me that? I don't care. I'm not going to come to your house with a score sheet. Just but like, don't oh. you think this is a very Western thing? Yes. Like, I've spent years talking to friends about this. Because, but if you look at how our houses are built here, the apartment buildings, you need a fault to go in. Mm-hmm. Even after you get in, you need a fault to get to each floor. Right. And all the houses, the doors are all closed, so nobody can see it. Yep. It's a very lonely, shut-in existence. And, but also, you look at Singapore, all the flats, the ground floor is an open space. All the old people, and they built benches on there. They built chess boards and old people with stone tables. Old people would sit there, they would drink, they would hang out, they would mingle in the morning, and then at 10 a.m., they go upstairs and have a nap. They somehow show up at 2, 3 p.m. again, and then at 5 p.m., they go up, make dinner, and have dinner. What's so fun about the continuation of this public space conversation is also the corridors. The difference between the corridors here, I always think about this because I've lived in like multiple apartments now and I am depressed in every single one of them. And one of the things I found out for me that had a very big impact for me is that not only are the doors closed, but in the front of the house, there are no shoes. You cannot put plants, right? Because everything is covered, so the plants will die. You cannot put your belongings outside, yeah. Uh, which in Singapore was very common, right? And and here instead, everyone has their plants on patios. But you cannot go past and be like, "Whoa, look at that! This is so nice." And that corridor culture, like to me, is such a missed opportunity. And and it really hit me because my parents came to visit me in 2013. The Ooh. first time after I moved here, it took them 10 years to, to come to see me. And the very first day when we walked 
when I like picked them up from the airport and we went back to my place, my dad made the comment saying that, wow, this looks like a hotel. <laughs> and I immediately had that realization or just, yeah, it looks like a hotel because it's so cold. It's very, this is my space. Yep. This is my house. And I don't want anybody to know anything about me. Yep. And you shared this earlier on. I did what you did. When I first came here, I tried to fit in. Even though I held on to some traditions and part of the culture, I also abandoned a lot of it. It wasn't until the last maybe 10 years that I really went back to it. But in order to fit in, it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to wear clothes that fit in. I'm going to eat things that I think is more acceptable. But then again, as you get older, you're like, ah, forget it. Just going to do what I want to do. This life's too short. For those of us that are in, in an apartment, you come home, you, you barely see your neighbors. You don't know who your neighbors are. And you come in, you lock the door. Yeah. And forget the corridor culture you put something out there the neighbor complained to the manager and then just like next day you get a letter you got to put it inside your door yeah so we moved into this place a year and a bit ago when we got the puppy and where we are is there's three different buildings and we moved from another building to this one this building is so community-based mm. And the reason, I talked to another neighbor, the reason, because this building out of the three has the most dogs. So, so dogs became the connector. Dog becomes the connector. All the dog owners, and they talk to each other, and the floor that we're on, I know all the neighbors. Oh, that's great. 30 years here, this is the first time it's happened. Wow. It really says something about the connection to the rate of loneliness and depression, right? What do you think, since we're on this topic, when we look at it from the Gumball perspective, the Takinang belief, what do you think a person like us who are immigrants, who are used to community, what do you think we can do so that we don't feel so alone, the depression? What do you think we can do? That's a PhD question. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do your PhD. Your partner would be unhappy with me. <laughs> oh, I think that's a that's that's definitely like the the simple answer, and then there's also the like more complex answer. The simple answer for for me, it's a lot of relearning. Especially for immigrants, something that recently I've started to think about, and, and it's a project that I'm going to do with Kakinam Productions, centers around the symbol of an egg. And when you're an immigrant, I think about it as if I use the egg as, as a conversation point, it's like rebirth, right? Oftentimes we hear what immigrants would say is I'm going to another country. And even as refugees who are forced to come, you, you, you are forced literally to reborn into a different culture, to eat different foods on different soils. And we don't talk enough about that symbolism of rebirth, but instead we talk about integration. Yeah. 
we talk as if we talk as if you're just throwing uh, someone down into a culture, and then they will know and do everything to fit into that culture. They are supposed to. Oh, they're supposed to. Yeah, but we don't treat it as like the importance of rebirth. And I've been thinking a lot about red eggs. Like in Singapore, in part of the culture, we give red eggs to families when there's a new baby, right? Or if people have a milestone birthday, for weddings, or to couples to wish people to have a new beginning. And I've been thinking a lot about how, in the sort of story of assimilating into Canadian culture, part of that learning is that we are told that we need to give up our own cultures, or we are shown that our cultures of community are not welcomed. So I think that a lot of the stereotypes that comes through racism, whether it's for like Indian families that people make fun of their curries or their smells, even things like Chinese people are supposed to be fair and eat um, small portions of foods, but there are all these assumptions about us from Western colonial cultures and ideas that are not true about us. And so many immigrants that I have met, one of the main struggles that I keep hearing people talk about often is my English is not good enough. My English is not good enough. And I say that to this day too, because mm. there's another whole conversation about the educational system in Singapore and how our English papers are sent to Cambridge, to the UK to be marked. That's another deep conversation. That was very stressful, but we'll invite you back and we can talk about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that sort of like the immigrant experience. But we don't essentially think about the significance of what it means to be reborn into a society that's not ours. Because when we were first born, we were born into our community. But here, we are born into a vacuum whereby we have to then look for community. We have to look for the other ones who are also born into a vacuum. They're just like, because just being born into Canadian is not a thing. You don't just come here one day, boom, you're Canadian, you know everything. It's that we all come repackaged as eggs again. And when we hatch ourselves as immigrants and settlers, we realize that we are truly alone and lonely. And I think like when that is the first experience of coming out, I'm going to use the like, gender term of coming out as an immigrant. But being faced with dark community, it's very stark. It means that we lose skill sets of building community from first day because you don't have your relatives around to welcome you. You don't get the red color egg as a newborn. So I often think about what do immigrants have to do to be in community, to get community. And I think it's really first to recognize, for me, I call it the simple answer, but it's part of a bigger complex answer, is that in our reflection to realize that we're not automatically Canadians and that the culture of being Canadian as an immigrant means that we're coming out of this rebirth completely alone. And so it makes sense why it's so hard to find it. And, and for us, I think, to, to look for community. Now, here's the long, complex part for me, because I think a lot about this, is that we have to really think of what we've chosen to give up. Not chosen, but what we've been forced to give up. 
And oftentimes, I think it comes back to our language. We first give up our language. We then give up our community way of thinking to fit in. And then we try to assimilate into the Western idea of finding community, which is, to me, full of red tape, troublesome, a lot of cleanups needed. It's messy, but in a very different way. Whereas ours was just like, we're messy from the start and we'll just do it, but we'll, we'll see each other. I love everything that you share, but I don't know if this happened to you. Like for me, because we try to fit in, right? And I've talked to a lot of friends who are immigrants and who, who's been here for a long time and who are older. Is that the sad thing is we never fit in. At some point, you have to come to the fact that no matter how hard I try, I will never fit in. For me, the older, wiser me is, I might as well just stand out then if I'm never going to fit in. I might as well just use my voice. I might as well do what I need to do because I'm never going to be accepted 100%. I think what a lot of new immigrants or refugees don't get in the beginning is you don't even know. I love the red egg analogy because it's such a significant thing in our culture, right? the reborn part of it. As someone who's new to a country, you don't even realize that now you're alone. You have no community. The food is different. The people are different. You don't realize it for a while because you're so busy trying to fit in. And by the time you realize that, I didn't honestly notice the impact it had on me for years. And by the time that you notice it, you're like, oh, no wonder I was so lonely and depressed for so long. Did that happen to you? Or was it just me? Am I just special? But you're very special. <laughs> I'm on antidepressants right now. I'm taking antidepressants and I definitely have this experience. It feels so spiritually deep for me. Like we talk about body experiences, emotional experiences, but that's a psychological, philosophical, but also spiritual kind of thing that happens. I'll, I'll say this much as, a, as an example for you. My English, my level of English comprehension compared to 20 years ago is a result of trying to fit in. When I lived in mm -hmm. Singapore, I failed English through and through. People don't notice, again, this is like another topic for next time for the, about the educational system and how assimilation starts even before you immigrate is the programming of the need to speak English, though the colonizers language because we were colonized by the British, right? So the British were look upon as like the experts for everything. Now, I'm just going to insert this here. And in Singapore, in the 80s and 90s, if you speak English and if you have friends who are white, you are looked at upon at as more educated. Yes, more cultured. More cultured, yeah. So the English that I speak and use now, even down to my pronunciation and accent, I've recognized that these are all part of programming because of internalized racism and classism, right? Mm -hmm. And 
that I have learned all these years on how to conduct myself so that I can look normal to a white Canadian, so that I can avoid being called an Asian person. Because it's like, it's not wrong to call me Asian, but it's that the Asian label comes with something else. When white people call you Asian, somewhere in their minds, there's the fair skinned Asian, the long, straight hair Asian, the skinny Asian, right? And then everything else becomes sideways. So that many years of programming, and people won't know until I say it, is that I, I never told this to anyone really. I think you're the first, but because we're in this conversation, is that the English that I speak now directly represents the years of learning to be Canadian. And what it has done to me is that um, I've forgotten a lot of Chinese words and not just Chinese words, but I've forgotten Teochew expressions. Mm-hmm. I've started to feel like a split body, mm-hmm. multiple identities. And I feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't know when, who is going to show up. And I, when I like chat about this with racialized peoples, right? People of color who were not born here, but immigrated from somewhere or were refugees. We talked about this same crises. I was just feeling because you code switch, right? So much. And you don't even know you're doing it. That's the problem. No. And you think that you're being like a normal Canadian person. And then you want to hear someone referring to you as Canadian, but knowing that whenever someone says the word Canadian, they're referring to a white person. That it really does something to you. Like for me, the honeymoon phase, I call it, is now over. I'm now at the part where I'm seeing everything wrong with the country that I'm in for its colonizing histories, for its current practices, and how me as a poor Singaporean kid could have come to this today, living here, speaking the colonizer's language in such fluency. And I still think I speak bad English. Mm. I still do until today. Wherever I write, and do my work, I am extra stressed out because I feel like somewhere out there, a white Canadian person is there judging my writing, judging my English. And I feel the same way. My grammar, if you compare it to the expectations here, sucks. Yeah, that because, makes two of us. But... You would think we wouldn't think our English is bad because we were British educated. Yep. Right? It really messes the whole how you fit in an identity. As it really landed with me when you were saying that you feel like it's a split personality because you don't know. I felt like that for a very long time. It wasn't until I did my ancestral healing work that I was able to we mean a lot of my past that I abandoned when I came here in order to fit in. So I reclaimed a lot of that and then I was like, ah, okay, this is who I am. But also, I never felt at home in Singapore. Yeah, same. But I also don't feel 100% at home in Vancouver where we live. Right? 
Yep. Yeah, there are different layers to it. It could be, uh, there are other reasons for it. But do you feel at home anywhere? No, In- I, I, I don't. Yeah, home is such an interesting word for me. Like people like to say home is where the heart is, which I partially agree. Mm-hmm. But I find like home is always changing. It's always being redefined. And honestly, I don't feel at home in Singapore. I, I feel like the home that I knew and was familiar with in Singapore has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Taken over by modernization, taken over by gentrification. And I, I think a lot of elders feel this way often when their neighborhood changes. Like I know that when Singapore went through the huge developments of flats, there was a lot of grief from elders, right? Mm-hmm. Or like from people during that time in the 60s, 70s, when the first housing estates were built up and people really talk about the struggle to transition into those homes. And I feel the same way. I feel in my heart, that's a kampong. And where the disconnection is that I've lived in flats Mm -hmm. most of my life in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And so I don't feel like Singapore is so much home. And I feel it even lesser here in Vancouver. Yeah. I feel like a factory worker in Vancouver. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other conversation. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this helps you. So for me, I had to change the way I look at the question, where do I feel at home? Where do I get my sense of belonging? thank you to my lovely therapist, is that for me, it's not so much a place anymore. It's more who to, who I'm with. Yes. For you, I feel a sense of belonging because we have the same history and background. We can talk some of the same languages with some dear friends. That's a sense of belonging because I know I will not be judged and I can be who I am because I think ultimately the sense of belonging is can I be who I am mm-hmm. without having changed the way I look, the way I sound, my English, my grammar? Can I throw in some Singlish without being judged? Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful example. Um, we talk about the practice of when neighbors come, you don't clean your house. I remember it might be Tignahan that that had said this. Or written about this, where it's like, what a friend really is. And a friend is someone that comes to your home and accepts your home for the way it is without you needing to extra clean it up. And they don't come and complain about your house. And so I think about you, Patricia, what your home is and what our homes are truly spaces where we just want to be ourselves. And when people are able to get into that space with us with no judgment with love and care as though they are actually stepping into a physical home and be like your home is fine as it is i don't need you to clean it up extra for me i don't need you to perform i'm just coming to visit you even if you're in the middle of chopping up a chicken even if your house smells like chili paste yeah 
that I find like that translates to our human experience of, yeah, belonging is not a static thing. It's an ongoing reciprocal exchange of safety, of care and love and acceptance. And that, that we don't require people to do extra bits just to please us. And then yeah. we can accept that. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, like I think about maybe circling back to Lunar New Year. And one thing that's beautiful about Lunar New Year, sometimes I feel like in the celebrations of it, and, and not just Lunar New Year, like we think about in Singapore because we're multicultural, right? So there's also Hari Raya. Mm -hmm. There's also Deepavali. And how, when you approach it with a kampung culture, I think one of the more beautiful things that I appreciate about that is, oh, it's Lunar New Year. Our Malay and Indian folks will take care of the stuff that Chinese people don't do during their break. And vice versa, during mm -hmm. Hari Raya, Chinese and Indian folks show up for Malay folks so that they can have a break. And everyone has their celebrations out in public. And no one bets a year. We appreciate it. You get the day off. You get the day off. Each other's New Year's. Yep. You get the day off. Yep. And we know that there will be public celebrations, there will be noise and music, and we accept that as part of the, the fabric of it. One thing we didn't talk about Lunar New Year is the lion dance, right? How noisy it is because lion dance yeah. comes with cymbals and drums and big processions. Deepavali is big processions. The colors. The colors and everything. And this happens right in front of people's homes, right? For some, uh, I remember like for some people, like my grandmother and grandfather did it too. They would invite the lion dance troupe to come and then you will hang the letters on top of the door. And then the lion is supposed to come and scare away the nian or the monster. The, yeah. And bring luck to your house. Well, well. And that happens during Lunar New Year's around, like my grandmother had Ismaili neighbors. Yep. And instead of shutting the door, his door is wide open and he comes out and he like looks at it and he smiles. And he even comes and brings uh, two oranges, which is another custom oh, of Lunar great. New Year. Yeah. And it's for listeners, the two oranges, uh, orange sounds like wealth and luck. So you bring two oranges in exchange for two oranges back. Um, and that is a way of passing luck to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that open concept, right? Mm -hmm. But here, look at us. Celebrate with us. Or in the case of a funeral, grieve with us. Yes. Because at, with all the flags at the apartment buildings, it's the, for the Chinese people, the... Funerals, the uh, way is downstairs where there's open space, and they're there from anywhere from three to five to seven days. That's right, 24 you know, hours. 24 hours. And when my dad died, my sister and I took the night shift because we were already jet lagged, anyways, because we flew back. And neighbors would come, right? People of different faith and culture would come because they knew my dad. And because the wake was downstairs, it's open, anybody could come. Yep. Right? At night, there was a buffet. People came for the buffet. My father passed in 2017. And 
sometimes it is still really hard for me. As I reflect on this conversation with Luna, the significance of people coming together to hold you when you're going through something difficult or even in celebrations, that is community. I still struggle with how community is looked upon in a Western individualistic society. And as I work with mostly Asian people, the topic of community and connection always come up. So this week's advice from me, your Chinese auntie, is to think about how does community look like for you? How does connection look like for you? And is it possible to not rely on just one person for all your connection? Because that's not realistic. We need people and different people who can be there for us for different things. For example, I have a group of friends on WhatsApp. They are the ones I go to for spirituality, for witnessing. And I have another friend. She's the one I text when I need advice on raising our adorable puppy. And I have my husband and I have my really close sister friends. I invite you to think about how does community look like for you? How does connection and belonging look like for you? Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, remember to sign up for our newsletter to receive free materials and updates. Links in the website, patriciapeterson.ca. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you in the next episode.